I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. Hope you can hear me. Um, a very warm welcome on a, on a cold night to the London Review Bookshop, where I am absolutely delighted to welcome Zadie Smith and Adam Thurwell to talk about their new books, respectively, The Fraud and The Future Future. Um, we've had both authors in before. We've done events with both before separately. And it's just a real joy to have two people in together talking about their work. It's uh, feels exciting. It's gonna it's gonna feel good, and that's why you're all here. Um, that's it from me, and just help me welcome our guests. Thank you both so much. Cheers. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, so, I think I think the reason why we're here is because um, we've we've known each other for before I was even first published. Mm -hmm. um, 20 so something like years. 20 years ago. <laughs> and um, a couple of years ago, a year ago, I'd sent the manuscript of The Future Future to Zadie to read. And, uh, and she'd written back saying it's really weird because um, I'm just finishing my new novel and there are many parallels, um, however different they are, there are many parallels between the two. So what we thought would be kind of interesting, hopefully, um, would be to sort of think about these parallels yep. and maybe think about why... We made some notes. Why they are. Out I've, of anxiety. I've, <laughs> we've, we've made anxious notes, <laughs> which, are, which are words. Yes. Um, and so the first thing, uh, I think we're both feeling quite old. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's fair. Uh, yeah. And old-fashioned. And, um, and I think the thing that links these two especially, or kind of at the beginning, is this idea of, I think we're both passionate defenders of the novel as a form and the novelistic as a way of writing and maybe even a way of reading. And at the same time, both these books seem to hate writers <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with, with, with a feral passion. Um, so I guess the first question I guess is like, yeah, why, what for you is, the, what does the novel, like, why are you so attached to that? way of writing, as it were, why not? Why do we not just write essays? Um, God, that's a good one. I, I think for both of us, the act of translation is important. Of There's a line somewhere in, I remember it being here in the book, in your book, 
about translation not to insist on being a single thing. And right after it, there's some sentence about everybody was very hung up on description. So we've, we've both long had this like anxiety about everyone being hung up on description, and yet it's literally our job to sit around describing things <laughs> day in, day out. That tension has been there from the beginning, like a love of language, a fascination with it, but a s suspicion about it, about how far it reaches and what it's it can not do. Good enough, that it doesn't do the job. Well, we were talking downstairs before we got up here about being '90s kids and being trained on Saussure, which is what they used to drill into your head, this kind of linguistic theory, which was that the signified, the word for something, is much larger than the thing it signs for, basically. And that language just escapes whatever you try to contain it in. And that's something that's beautiful about the novel and that I enjoy. Um, but it also... is dangerous for the world because we're constantly thinking that we can describe everything in the world through language, but both these novels are interested in things which escape language, that can't be yeah. known by language, that can't be colonised by language. Yeah, and I think that's one effect. I think that's something that's changed for me, because I think when I was 25, I think I Yeah, you really thought, thought, I thought I could, you could do it. I I you could. thought if you just had enough that it was smarts, all going to be fine. you could cover the world in language, describe it, everything, put everything to rights. Yeah, and I think uh, this definitely reflects, I think, in both ways, I think, a kind of sense of the limits of what you can do Maybe just not only with the sentence, I think, but with the whole form of a novel, like with the kind of canvas of a novel or the breadth of a novel. Right. Um, I mean, I guess the thing that, like the word I think I was taught at college, as it were, was irony. So we were taught that like, and I think that's still what I deep down believe is that a novel is structured on some kind of system of ironies. So that no one is right. That's the basic kind of, right. everyone thinks they're right. Um, and that, the good novel will construct a kind of complex network where everyone somehow, like, something contradicts something somewhere else. Yes. Um, and they're, I don't know, like, what they want is never matched up with what they get or the consequence is always an unintended consequence. I really did believe in that as a kind of morality of a novel when I was young and that, that process of reading in that ironical way of understanding that nobody has to complete ownership of truth was somehow... Uh, improving, that would improve you, that would make you move through the world in a different way. But, but the historical novels we've read, I mean, the novels from that period, particularly the Victorian novels in my case, that are so um, beautifully written, so alluring, such a beautiful whole, do all of that, you know, complicated moral business. And people read them, enjoyed them, and, and did nothing. That, that's been a central problem for us as well from the beginning. The, the knowledge that, you know, Nazi guards listened to Bach and read Tolstoy and that this supposed humanising process of a novel doesn't always function in that way. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't make good people at the other or end. Or is that just not the thing that, that if it is working, that's not the proof that it's working? So... Maybe we were wrong to be thinking, well, they should have some massive improving that society would be much better because we've written novels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely wrong about that. Um, <laughs> that was a massive error. <laughs> that was a massive original error. But maybe there is this, but, like the, but the, it might be more momentary than that. So it might be that right. for the space, because like, like, I think that one of the things in the contemporary moment that clearly I think we're both worried about is that that kind of reading, because it's not just, I think, you know, you try and construct this thing, but then you also, you construct the thing you'd like to read. Yeah, I'm still attached to that idea of reading. 
that's yeah. the thing. Even if I don't believe it is a kind of simple machine that ends in a certain result, I, I still am attached to the idea that the signifier is excessive, that it yeah. goes all over the place. It doesn't belong completely to a person, that you cannot define someone entirely by saying white man, black man, tall woman, big house, that something about language escapes its supposed signification. And that is important to me. It's like a kind of freedom that I need. Um, I want to go to my list. Do you think um, it, sorry, go on. I'm just thinking, there's a line in an essay by Kundera when he's talking about one of Tolstoy's novels and he has this beautiful sentence where he says, the truth is that all great novels are more intelligent than, no than the novel novelist who wrote it. Absolutely. And I think that that's something to do with what we're talking about with the construction, that if there's something that happens in what, ever we're calling a true novel as opposed to the bad novels. And the thing that, the, the difference, the kind of moment is right. this moment of liberation where somehow the novel gets free. It goes so far beyond you, has mm. its own logic, partly because, and that's the other thing that I hold on to from the 90s that isn't very fashionable, is that the language that I use is in no way mine. It doesn't belong to me. It's not issuing from me as like some, it's a tissue of a culture. It comes from all kinds of places. Yeah. All I do is move it around put it into place, but it's not, I don't own it in that sense. And that explains that feeling, which is so persistent when you finish a novel, that the novel is smarter than you, better than you, organized differently than you, thinks in a different way than you do, because novels have their own logic after a while. And I think often are more ethical than you. Far more. <laughs> the gap between the goodness of the novel and the goodness of me is like uh, yeah. huge. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, why a historical novel, because for two writers who so committed to the contemporary. I think it was like my, it was a kind of nightmare, the idea that I would write a historical novel. I think you were kind of ashamed. Yes, I think I was a little <laughs> bit ashamed. If what a historical novel meant was nostalgia, a conservative idea of the past, or willing to return to the past, but the moment I read your book, first of all, I was jealous of how fully you, you committed to the strategy, because part of the strategy to me was catch them undefended. That's always the strategy of a novel. You have to get around people's, maybe in a neurological way, the neural pathways they've got used to. You have to find some way to like short circuit it, go around the sides, make them think things they wouldn't normally think. And suddenly the most obvious way to do that was to go to the place that everybody has decided is completely uninteresting. Yesterday. Yesterday, yesterday is so over. <laughs> Everything that happened in the past is of no use to us. There's nothing there that we need. So it was a kind of yeah. a useful place to be. But then the problem was, what about the language? Because I'm goddamned if I'm writing a 19th century novel in 19th century language. So when I started reading yours, it's so, if you haven't read Adams, it's got this brilliant technique of realizing that given that everybody is French anyway, and that we are thinking and working in translation, that translation might as well be completely contemporary. So messages being sent across Paris, you know, at great, speed are just messages and to our ear immediately sound like emails or WhatsApp or all the languages kind of both in the present and the past simultaneously. Um, and it's, I was so enlivened by it, whereas my strategy was just to try and reduce all the decoration of Victorian language until it was as close to my own voice as possible without, you know, lurching into anachronism. But you, your anachronisms, that's the point. You're like, you're right, you're in two places simultaneously. Well, I think I was so worried by people pointing out anachronisms. <laughs> you're like, fuck it, I'm going to have nothing but. Oh, just nothing but. They can't. <laughs> um, 
But I think it was also part of that, yeah, this idea of I'm not really wanting to write a novel literally about the past. It, it's a contemporary novel that will somehow have this 18th century right. setting. And well, I think that's what Devorah, who I can see there, um, who's a great reader of both of us, she's ignoring me, uh, said early on is that it's not a historical novel, it's an intervention. It's in, a way of thinking about the past with your present mind on. Yeah. And that, the moment she said that, I felt really freed by the idea, just as if I were writing an essay about the past, but in fictional form. You know? Do you think also, because it's interesting, you chose the Victorian era, I chose the 18th century, and I think, I think we've discussed this before, like there's some way in which both of us, in many ways, like for me, if I, you know, the 18th, something about 18th century literature that I've always loved, and I think right. for you, it was 19th century literature in one sense. But like, I think but that relates to the two key questions of our career, which yours was, they're to do with communality. What is a scene? Is Adam's question. What is a scene? Like, what is a scene? What is a scene? Is it a, there's a line in the book somewhere it says, I walked into a party looking for an ally. And I think for our generation, you were trying to find what people would call now chosen family or some other way of organizing your communal life. But Adam's question was always, what is What's a your scene? Question? My <laughs> question, I think, is what is a people? Which yeah. was a previous question for Jewish writers like a generation before. But by the time I came up, I was in that position of the Jewish writer of the 50s and 60s. Like, yeah. what is a people? What does this term mean? If I'm a member of the African diaspora, if I'm a black person, what does it mean to be a people? What are the kind of limits and borders of it? So it doesn't really surprise me that the novels work in that way. The 18th century is a scene and a cool scene. And the 19th century is not cool in any way, <laughs> but is entirely about peoples, like these battles between peoples, between worlds, England, Jamaica, colonial world, the centre. And also, I guess, for both of us, the idea of the periphery. Mm. Because you're from the suburbs and I'm from whatever you call Wilsdon, urban suburb, but definitely not in the centre. Always yeah. like looking and I think in. A constant <laughs> yearning for what a was yearning cool. for whatever the fuck was going on somewhere else uh, in the centre. So th I, when I was reading a book, that's what I, that's what I saw. It was like another interrogation of the scene, but also like, this is where middle age comes in with a with a slight melancholy, because I think you run into a party at twenty three, really looking for an ally and believing it's possible. At, at 45, maybe. You're just trying to leave. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're less convinced that allies are going to happen at this party. Um, and, and maybe also just the, the flow of ideas about these things, scenes and people, have changed underneath us. So, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about the longer you stay in the world, you realise that even what seem very firm ideas are, in the culture are rhetorical strategies that can flip Mm. Literally 180 degrees within 20 years, and keep on doing so. Um, yeah, for the just said too much. Um, if we go, I want to go back to the Jewish. It's interesting yeah. what you're saying about because I guess this idea of the scene and the people, and there, I, th I guess what I think maybe it's just occurring to me, the, the sort of common thing is this idea of belonging that I think right. we're both very interested in. Where does a person belong? Right. And. Um, and it's interesting because those kind of Jewish writers were very important to me um, as a Jewish writer, but also feeling like as a half Jewish writer, so therefore also kind of it always in and out. And that was how, right. you know, how I grew up. Um, and I think I was very concerned, much more I think at the beginning of my career about defining myself both as a Jewish writer and against being a Jewish writer right. and trying to find ways of kind of creating half Jewish writing. Um, 
And I think it's interesting to think that it wasn't a question of identity, maybe it was about belonging, which I think is it's more interesting It's more about question. belonging. It's so in like I was reading this fantastic collection of black sci-fi published exactly in the year 2000, which I think is the year we published or around then. And it's a really like Afrofuturism, really incredible early example of that. And at the end of all the stories, there's an essay by Samuel Delaney, who's a great queer black uh, sci-fi writer. And he's, it's a really angry essay. He's making this argument, like, whenever I go to a sci-fi conference, they always put me with Octavia Butler. And I'm reading this in 2023, like, wait, what? <laughs> and watching the way that, that those arguments yeah. flip, like, for him, it's an argument of, what's wrong with you white people? Everywhere I go, you always put me with Octavia Butler. We have completely different imaginations. Why are you always putting me together? 23 years later, this opposite argument would be made, right? So it's not that one argument is right and one argument is wrong. To me, I'm, that's not what interests me. It's just that these intellectual repetitions and fashions change so often. Mm. And you have to have some years on you to notice the patterns in which they move. So I, I always, I mean, felt from the beginning that belonging, I mean, maybe the one thing we had in common when we were young is the sense of this, the comedy about the border where belonging happens, that you're both, as a Jewish person and a black person, defined by your collectivity, but your collectivity is also your oppression. So a really dumb version is, you know, dancing. Like I remember being a kid, when I was a kid, everyone would say, you know, black people love to dance. And I'd be like, don't tell me black people love to dance. And I'd be like, I love to dance. Like I do, I, do, I love to dance. So that was one of those strange borderlines where you are aware that the collectivity is both in some way true or sentimentally yeah. true to you and also the definition of the thing you are categorized and it, as. And, and it's, it, it's annoying, but it's also absurd. It's an absurdity. Yeah. And it's a form of policing as well. So the right. larger collectivity then tells you off if you're not right. perceived to be doing the kind of thing that the collective wants. Um, yeah, this thing about kind of, because I think the idea of aging is also, I think, behind actually why certainly I was quite drawn to writing about history was because I think I wanted to write about what time does yeah. or my experience of time and what it takes away or reveals. And I think, but... And, I'm kind of interested, I don't actually have an answer for why, what, what I didn't want to do was write about, as it were, 1970 to 2023, that for right. some reason in Britain, so for some reason that was too close or too difficult. And so I think that one of the, it's not the only reason, but I think it was the idea of trying to find um, another space in which to kind of put time as the subject. And well, I read it as you trying to get to the root of it, like, there's a line I've been noting down, lines of yours all day. There's one about, well, first of all, the book begins with, it, it all began with writing. Um, but there's a sense that it's trying to find the moment when the world becomes covered in language, because it seems so normal and self-evident to us that the world is a linguistic object. So it's just represented all the time by images, words, secondary things. But it was not always the case. And you're getting a little bit earlier in that history where people are becoming quite self-conscious about the idea that there are, for example, second selves in the world. Like, so Adam's book is full of pamphlets, people writing about other people, gossip, basically. Gossip that's moving through the world and creating another you. But, you know, you don't have to go too much further back from where your book is set to find gazillions of people who would have seen no image of their own face, mm. who could not have afforded a mirror, who might have seen themselves in a puddle, but had no conception of a secondary self moving through, or even existing, yeah. moving through the world. And I think that's been a preoccupation. Like when I watched, wrote Swing Time, I was thinking about like, 
the internet had a beginning and before that there were phones and before that, you know, I was trying to think myself back into the ways yeah. I thought about time and, and then going back this far, um, time works completely differently. Like swing time is full of people really believing their lives can be, uh, you know, fast forwarded or re the metaphors of video basically, pause it at the moment where yeah. something really is gonna happen to you. The media, the technology affects your way of viewing the world. So for me, reading your novel is like, oh, this is how people conceive of their social world when the printing press explodes. Yeah. When for the first time, it's suddenly like, it's not just me. I'm not just here as a physical person on a chair. I can be in Paris in letter form or in Berlin or across town as a piece of gossip. It's so hard to get your mind back into how insane that must have felt. Yeah, I think for me, like, I there was a long time when, luckily, I didn't call it this. I wanted to call it spooky action at a distance. I do where, like that which too. I did quite like, um, where I got more and more interested in like both how language in that era was for, it felt like for the first time was was letting people exist in different places, right. as it were, in more than one location at once. So they're having this weird experience of teletransportation or something just by being written about or talked about. Absolutely. Um, and at the same time, it's the era of colonialism. Right. Where, so it's, also, it's being used to hide. So it's things. Being, exactly, and it's being used to be predatory, but while denying that you're being predatory right. because no one actually knows. And I think that was the other thing you see for you, because I think what's interesting in the fraud is partly how much, if I'm upset by messaging and pamphlets, it feels like you're actually obsessed by the novel as a genre almost, as a yeah. mass market genre, and as something that is suddenly proliferating. So Ainsworth is writing and is obsessed by sales figures. Right. And, um, but the novel is a weapon of oppression, which is a really hard, thing to conceive of as a novelist, but there is just no doubt. I mean, both our novels, Adams goes to Haiti, mine go, goes to Jamaica. And one of the things that is being represented by language is human bodies and human souls. Yeah. They're being represented in secondary terms as the slave or the savage or and circulated through European cities, but having no appearance because particularly in the English context, we've talked about a lot, everything is happening offshore. It's an offshore mentality right down to the bone. So it, that means everything's happening in language. There's no physical reality in front of you to know this is what this actually means. And so it's not that I hate novelists, but of course it's very hard to swallow watching a load of novelists sitting around discussing justice, rights, as we are right now, um, while sitting on top of monstrosity. Yeah, well that's what, because I think, are we in some way displacing, I mean, many monstrosities, like, we're by, doing it right now. By, exactly. We're having a literary event and we, we are absolutely sitting, sitting on top on of a monstrosity every moment. So that is something literature is always doing. And is there a way, like, I'm just trying to thinking, how would you try and address, like, what's the direct well, way Well, the old that? argument was if you render these secondary existences in language that is beautiful enough and humanizing enough and has enough clarity, you will make these people real to other people and then they will behave in a way. But that's not true. I, I don't think it well, is it true. Work. It doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it has a limited utility and yet it is also not nothing. And I felt that that was important. Like when I was writing this book, thinking about all the kinds of action from, of course, at the most radical end, the slaves themselves revolting continually or Toussaint yeah. Louverture in your book, um, to what we would call activists now or labor rights heroes, people like Frederick Douglass, etc. But all those other people in the books, the kind of uh, well-meaning abolitionists, the ladies refusing to take sugar in their tea, and they are all being affected by language. And they are all doing something. And it, 
is never sufficient, but it isn't nothing. Mm. And I feel it myself, like a few days ago, I was reading an account of where our fish comes from, like the fish you might be going to eat tonight, uh, sushi, well, all your fish, basically, from what are basically like Chinese slaves on boats out in the middle of the ocean, sometimes for two years, being paid what I would call slave wages and being treated pretty much like indentured laborers. So this is not some kind of mysterious event that's ha yeah. it's happening now. And when I read something like that, of course, my life is not immediately transformed and I never eat another piece of fish again. I'm not that good a person, but I believe there are some people who do have that response. We both know young people who will never get on a plane again. God bless them all. So it does have an effect, yeah. the linguistic representation. It's just it's not guaranteed and it's not absolute. But to say it's nothing is a different kind of nihilism. So do you think there's a way in which I'm just thinking about kind of, as it were, us in 2000 with our kind of Nabokovian idea of <laughs> that novels should be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. above, you know. Painful and, to remember, yeah. Um, and where there, like, as it were, what, whatever was figured as wrong was figured purely as ironised yeah. activity. And yeah. I think one thing that's true of both these books is that they're interested in guilt, which I think is a different, yeah. like, and the proliferation of guilt, which is, I think, what you're describing is that if you construct societies that become world societies in many ways, um, what that will do is it will proliferate how much guilt each right. citizen... You, you, you give a human being an impossible amount of guilt. Like I, I, even mentioning the plane, I felt everyone in the room go, oh, planes. <laughs> yeah, I get on planes sometimes, yeah. So it, if, if the society is structured in such a way that there is no way in which to live cleanly, yeah. that is part... That seems to be partly a product of a kind of nihilism, because if you can't be perfect, why do anything, right? Yeah. Or if you can't be ideal, why, why act at all? So to me, the 19th century is like a lesson in um, half good action and its utility, yeah. so that's something. Um, but yes, you want a, a society in which uh, such enormous structural issues are not the matter of individual morality. That's not what they should be the matter of at all. Individual morality is hard enough. You, running your intimate life, mm. your partner, your kids, your lovers, that's hard enough. The whole point of a decent, just structure is that it should... You want to offshore your guilt. You should yeah. offshore your guilt to, to the, the state in some yeah. form who is hopefully a right actor. Yeah. But we're both writing books at times where the state is in no way a right actor. And yeah. yet people are still trying to live their intimate lives. And that... That's, that's yeah. been in both of our books from the beginning. Exactly. What to do about your internet you life? That, is there any point in it? Because I think that in many ways, every book often reverses the book before or tries yeah. to get at the whatever was the revealed by argument. the previous yeah. book. And, um, and certainly I think in my book, the previous book, Lurid and Cute, which was about this terrible narrator who was basically just a sort of voice of privilege, um, having sex with whoever they wanted, doing whatever they wanted. And with this knowledge that they were acting very badly, but that, you know, in the end, they didn't want to give up that kind of power. So I think in that novel, I was very interested in the sort of that double think that I feel the kind of person who reads a novel is thinking all the time. Yes. Um, if you're in that privileged state. And so this, I think, was then an attempt to try and reverse the perspective in it some way. It would be the opposite of... Um complacency yeah. or to find the genealogy of it I think which I think which is what you're doing here as well is to sort of find a genealogy for a certain way of thinking that you've been describing in the contemporary right. um, I mean the book of is an interesting starter because he he was in no way complacent and his life had more 
political and personal struggle in it than, than most people's. But part of his uh, resistance was pleasure, mm. which is such a weird concept now. Like, it's very hard to even read him, but he was so determined that his resistance would be, I, I believe in pleasure, I have a right to it. And neither the Nazis or the Gulag are going to take from me my belief in the beauty of the world yeah. and the pleasure of the world. And that was kind of enacted in this high aesthetic, which was perfect and I think which attracted us both, but is also, I mean, I'd never read him now. I just find him airless. Like, yeah. I know it's beautiful, but I can't breathe in that, like, Do you think it's perfect also, construction. Like... Yeah, so, you know, I certainly grew up reading much more than British novelists, reading Central European novelists. Yeah, you know, much that, more. Um, you are a breath of European air, and, um, God. <laughs> and, um, and I think one of the things that has shifted for me is that I think I totally therefore acquired in Kundera, in Nabokov, in Danilo Kish, in Hrabal, uh, this idea that in order to, to, you had to resist the political because the political right. for all of them was the totalitarian. Right. And therefore pleasure, as it were, the pleasure of the text or the pleasure of the refusal of politics. Um, and obviously, and then it took me 20 years to realize that obviously there's a very big difference if you've gone through those systems. Right. Um, I feel like Kunder and Abokov earn, if they want to posit pleasure instead of politics, then they, their suffering is the kind of... Um, Absolutely reason for that and it's not necessarily true that the bourgeois person from a suburb in london can claim the same right. Um, right. apolitical stance and so i think that uh, the earth uh, moves under you as you get older both aesthetically politically culturally and but so, some of it's really interesting like again i remember thinking it's kind of similar that i wanted to reclaim the english novel for my people to write put my people in it to write it in my way but the older I got, some of the, the deep structures of the English novel are the problem. Like, like the coziness, the, the fact that everything always fits together in a lovely way. I, I read someone recently writing about my novel saying, it's so annoying, this novel, it resists you at every turn. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that is exactly the fucking point. Because I've read all those other, I love Dickens, I grew up on that stuff, but it, it sends you to sleep in some way. It's like a, yeah. a lovely blanket that comes around you. It's incredibly enjoyable. But the point is not to think. He's, he's saying to you, I'll do the heavy lifting. You have a good time. I'm here to give you a good time. Mm. And I think for both of us, the novel has been about thinking. Like it's a way of thinking with language. And that is absolutely not to everybody's taste. I totally get that. Because <laughs> there are other ways to think. You can think in an essay. You can think in an argument. Um, and thinking in a novel seems an extremely perverse Place <laughs> to is, think. You could well, do it so much easier in a different form. Well, no, you see, I think um, give people me, more pleasure. I think the thinking of a novel, <laughs> more and more, is like, uh, is, seems to be very related to the thinking of a friendship or a conversation. It seems yeah. related to the thing I love about conversations is the way they produce these things that you hadn't, neither of you had thought of right. at, until like, and that there's something very beautiful. And that feels like you're going back to like the way we were trying to describe the construction of a novel of they, this thing produces something. Yes. That and it doesn't you know. You couldn't have produced if you were thinking only in terms of an yes. essay. Yes, and all those things that novelists sit on stages like this and waffle about, like you know, oh, I didn't know where the novel was going, and the novel tells me what it's about, and it's you want to yeah, close it, but, it, but it's true at some fundamental level. They're saying it's because it's true, though they romanticise it, and but but the novel does think in its own way. And when I'm writing an essay, and when I'm reading your essays, we're trying to make a case. It's an argument of some kind. And the whole point is to be a clever little kid and, and ace the argument, mm. you know, and convince the person. 
But a novel, I, I, I know there are instincts I have. Like I know this novel in some way is a revenge novel. I can feel it. Like it's meant to be cozy and nice and until it really isn't. And I, I really wanted some kind of revenge. And I, I know that instinct. Um, but it's still more diffuse as you write it. Mm. You know, you begin thinking, I want to, I want to show people <laughs> what happened in this country. I want them to know. But you can't control people's reactions. And I've met readers who literally have sat and spoke to me for an hour about how my book is about lovely English writers having tea. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. So people move the way through a novel the way they want to move, right? You can't control them in well, the same way. Like in yeah, and I think I had an anxiety about that when I started, like the anxiety of the reader and what they could do. Yeah. Um, but that's this thrilling that... bit. It's, it's exactly. the freedom. When but you're opening, that... you're not being told what to think. Not exactly. Because it also seems to me that the difference between an essay and a novel is that with novels, nothing. It's like it keeps carrying on in some way, so yeah. that there isn't a necessary endpoint to the sort of machine or network right. of, of the way a novel works. Whereas I feel like an essay, however brilliant in its insights or language, it stops and it's kind of like I find the idea of rereading essays much harder to contemplate. Than, yeah, I don't see the point. Yeah, you know, once you've read an essay. You unless I've forgotten the argument and I want to, or unless you want to just no, make you yourself feel smart for a minute again. Or enjoy but the beauty of an argument, but it is still linear and it's yeah, not going to, whereas I think there's something about novels and the reason why rereading is clearly built into a novel, I think. Like, well, now there's a question. I've been thinking about this. Like, uh, it's built into our idea of a novel, rereading those goddamn... Big novels. Yeah, over and over and over again. But is it really anybody's idea of a good time anymore, reading a novel more than once? And so th that doesn't seem to me like a small question. Because no, I think if it's... you write novels with the idea that they need to be read more than once, which is a scandal I in the present culture. I'm not, so, no, I think there's something different. I'm not saying that you, they're I'm more saying that they will respond to rereading and they yes. can still be enjoyed. I mean, like, do you think TV shows are made to be rewatched? Yes, you need a, a good 10 years in between and then it's a new show, like a good so TV sex, show. So yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love to do that, in fact, but I, I do, I do sometimes think that our conception of a novel is, you know, disappearing. But at the same time, in a quite Thurwellian move, I don't mind that much. I'm like, if it dies, it dies. Shit dies. I mean, it happens. Forms come, they go. The epic poem is not. Yeah, really, yeah. It's just, it's just it's one really of those things. Anymore. But I think. The pleasure here in reading you and us writing these books at the same time is remembering, it's like one of those N plus one titles, what was the novel? <laughs> what was the novel? Well, well, what was our kind of novel? And it, it was this kind Although, of thing. Although, to be, to be more hopeful, <laughs> yes. um, I think what's interesting about both is that they seem to me to be different for ourselves, different to, like, I think one of the things that yeah, why so we wanted to have this thought, conversation. Well done, we've grown up a little bit. Yeah. That was my main, <laughs> main reaction. It only took 20 years, but some slight maturation. And that is exciting, because then maybe in your 50s and 60s, uh, you have that technical skill and, and maybe something left to do. Yeah. I mean, do you think the idea of being off, because I feel like I used to find it quite funny. You'd often describe yourself as middle-aged, even when we were about 25. I started very early, yeah. I like um, to get ahead of the game, like in my own mind. Think, and, um, okay, this is where it's I happening. I think I was much more anxious to keep describing myself as incredibly young until it became obvious that that was no longer plausible. And, um, but I think that 
the sort of idea of the like would it matter if it was out of fashion like why would that be a problem doesn't no, I, why, why I've would... just keep feeling recently this like radical freedom when I'm picking up the random book like at the moment I'm reading uh, Wolf's diaries but any book out of time that just I like, grab off the shelf it's the privacy which you talk about so beautifully in this book that privacy matters and the relationship between you and a book that isn't of the moment or in the moment is radically private. It feels like it's just you and the book and all kinds of strange combinations are happening between your 2023 mind and whatever crazy thing you picked off the shelf. And I find that really energizing at the moment. Well, also, cause like talking, so the crazy thing I'm was just reading was Tolstoy's A Confession, which oh, I Oh yeah, um, I just read Turgenev. Look at yeah. us, like old people in front of the fire. Um, yeah. Where Tolstoy is basically describing a nervous breakdown where right. at the height of being the greatest novelist who ever lived and had just published Anna Karenina, he basically is like, everything I've done is shit and right. I should. And, um, and then he writes this thing, which and I was thinking, basically saying, and then writes kind of a series of pamphlets culminating in like, what is art? Where he describes an idea of what art should be that I was thinking 20 years ago, I would have thought this was utterly insane mm. because he's basically saying style is, who cares how well constructed I Anna Karenin is? I've all begun that, to think that. And yeah. all that matters is, are you basically confronted with God? <laughs> kind right. of. And I kind of, and I was reading this thinking, I, I, now I totally agree with it, that there's yeah. something about that freedom of thinking. It's not that I don't love beautiful sentences or want, I much prefer them to ugly sentences, but. They're that's not a not, god. That's not the point. And I yeah. think we did, like, as uh, much like Martin, Amos, and that whole crowd that we grew up under, like, it was sometimes uh, hard to explain, if I saw Martin, to explain to him why a contemporary novel I just read was really great, because he couldn't... If, it, if the sentence didn't have that level of aesthetic density, it was illegible to him. He just couldn't understand what it was. So all kinds of writing just passed him by, because it wasn't... It didn't have that... Yeah. And I, I love Martin, but I really didn't want that to happen to me. And so I, part of the, the exercise of it is just reading new all the time, different yeah. kinds of sentences, sometimes brutal sentences. They're brutal for a reason often when they're brutal. They're trying to do something to you which is of a different nature. Yeah. So trying to keep engaged at that level too is important. Have we talked for 45 minutes? Probably. I've got no watch. Someone else is going to take control of this matter. We've got five more. Oh, okay. Um, um, so I, I want that. I want to be engaged at the level of sentence, to recognise that there are many, many, many ways to skin a cat. Yeah. And the classic kind of English sentence is just one of, a, of many. I mean, because the other old-fashioned thing I think that both of us clearly interested in have been for is this idea of the universal, which I think is a word that yeah. no one cool <laughs> uses, um, but that is there in, I think the way we think about the novel, because I think it's about with that if identity is multiple and you and each human has competing identities, right. so they don't, it can't be reduced to just one. Um, then the way in which, like there's a beautiful thing actually that I loved towards the end of your book where Miss Touchett like says, my people, you know, the way yeah. Bogle says my, and like, and she knows what he means. Right. Um, and this idea of two very separate and different people having a commonality in the idea of what a people could be. Right. I um, think sometimes it's just about defending that our commonality. Like I have many overlapping peoples like most people do, but one of the most significant is writers. They are my people. And quite often in the past like 20 years, I felt that that commonality is hard to express. 
but particularly when I went to America and was reading like a lot of American writing and, and writing I hadn't read since I was a kid, like a lot of Toni Morrison again. And like, uh, we're part of the same diaspora, but everything about our individual lives is so different. But the possibility of communication between minds right. is what literature shows you over and over and over again. Not as some kind of idealistic, oh, we're all the same on the inside, whatever. But of a genuine attempt to make some kind of analogy. Yeah. Like Toni Morrison in Ohio in her mixed race town is not me and Wilsden in my mixed race suburb. But there are analogies. I can hear them. I can feel them. And where we don't chime, that's not the point where I turn away like, oh, well, uh, you don't get me or I don't get you. What kind of a way is that to have a relationship with a writer or a human? It's, it's got to be this constant analogous dance. Yeah, I wonder if it's interesting. Like one book we talked about earlier in the year was um, Daryl Pinkney's memoir of Elizabeth Hardwick. Yeah, I love that book. I and Daryl's a dedicatee of this book. Yeah, true. Which um, moved me so much because it's partly uh, in, for many reasons, but one of them was the just fervor with which he describes the He's writing a of pieces and the so we should maybe say pieces. that Daryl Pinkney is a African American scholar of I would say the diaspora. So like every detail of the diaspora is of concern to Daryl. He knows everything, every moment of history. Um, and, but he's also a, a believer in literature in a way that when yeah. I'm, we're sitting around the table with Daryl, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, Daryl, you can't say things like that about, about literature, like it's an actual godlike activity. That you, that's how he thinks about it. So he's 20 years older than us, I guess. He's in his early 70s. And that book is about him coming as a basically like a downtown heroin addicted student to Elizabeth Hardwick, who was teaching literature at the time and being kind of kept by her, you know, like she looked after him, she looked after a lot of people, but their conversations are just books. Mm. Every day is books. But I think it's also the nobility almost of, it is a good thing to read another writer and try and write about them. Yes. Honestly and sincerely. And, and she insists that he do it no matter what he's writing about and he takes it on as a practice. Um, but I think it goes to that. I think it overlaps with what you're saying about whatever we do believe, something is to do with just the, I don't know what the right word is. I was about to say the sanctity and I wouldn't want to use that kind of religious word, but like kind of something genuinely important in the act of trying to understand yeah. another human. Um, and I've got less language. shy, like for the first time this year, I, instead of uh, hiding my books in the house so I didn't see them, I've just made a pile, just an individual pile of each was just by my desk. I can see them, so that's, I wrote those books. And that's <laughs> what I did. And I, did, I feel less like, and I even used the word vocation in an essay, because I think it is a kind of vocation yeah. in that you do it every day. It means more to you than anything else. Um, and you believe it, you have to believe in it. Otherwise it's incredibly hard to do. But the nature of that belief, I don't, I don't really have a, well, I think it's strange for. because these books are so full. I mean, but is the hatred of writing or of language, maybe that's just the flip side of the devotion to it. Like, I think that... I'm I devoted to it, but I hate highfalutin language about it, though I suppose we've done that yeah. tonight. I hate writer's scarves. I hate writer's festivals. I hate the whole thing Ooh, that goes on around it. Some do, some do. And just a sense of it as a kind of such a rarefied thing that you don't have to do anything else practical in your life or that part always kind of yeah. repelled me and also the idea that language will magically bring justice um and there was a lot of that when we were coming up in the 90s of like you know the sacredness of the imagination and if we could only just imagine 
people would be freer and and so you got a little sick of that listening to that yeah well i think that generally i mean i think because there had been certainly say in century you know like there had been well, there'd like been havel, havel. Yeah. yeah he had actually everyone done it, would yeah. point to back havel um, right even though he hadn't written a play for 30 years but right he was still and I think, though, that that model of that in some way writers could create a revolution was really important to the generation above us, the generation of our parents. Yes, and we, we um, inherited and in complete complacency the the world that had been revolutionised, supposedly. Yeah. So we were like, oh, can we just go to parties? Turned out that was an error. Yeah. Yeah, it's always an error. Yeah, never, it's always never, an error. Never leave the house. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it's that from complacency yeah. to engagement. Well, we're done yeah. now. You can ask questions. Yeah. yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, uh, Hi, this is a question for Zadie. Yeah. Um, in your book, I love um, the description of London as it was then, particularly the Edgware Road, just sort of oh, yeah. a, a country lane with mm -hmm. fields surrounding it. Um, after doing all your, all your research, did you start seeing London in a different way? Uh, yeah, I mean, still, it hasn't quite stopped. I mean, people said research, but it really, all you have to do in London is look above the chicken shop. That's it. It's all there. <laughs> Nothing has changed. The 19th century is, I mean, particularly here, of course, but everywhere you go in Willesden, Kilburn, Kensal Rise, Halsden, it, it's, it's not like it's gone anywhere. So the only stretch is remembering that until really recently, like 1889, that whole bit from Top of Kilburn High Road to Marble Arch was pasture. And there was just where Kilburn's uh, overground station is, this beautiful place uh, for taking the waters. So it was like a mini heath, but down the hill. And the railway station just destroyed all of that. And um, so I do still see it, but that was also part of the resistance of the book that I really felt that it sounds so counterintuitive, but that the past was a place of resistance when you're living in a technological reality, part of which capitalist agenda is that there is only the present. That's part of the point of the phone, of the way it moves, of the logic of the algorithm is that now, 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 don't look behind you. It needs you like that. And one of its crimes is that it's convinced the whole generation that there's nothing in the past worth using. So again, part of the argument was, yes, this was Fields recently, but it was also, you know, gr political movements, a great solidarity, across classes, like, do you want to know about any of this stuff? Because it seems like useful uh, political lesson for right now. Um, I was wondering, it's a question for both of you about historical novels. I was wondering if um, sort of what the relationship was to research, if there were ever any things that you uncovered that you wanted to, to change to suit the story you were telling or any things mm -hmm. that you decided you couldn't change because you wanted to be constrained by that sort of historical setting and context? You go. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, yeah, I was very allergic as well to the idea that I had to do research. I know, never had to do any proper work before. Never had to do that before. <laughs> um, and then, 
There is definitely, I think I, what I found was the fear of both under-researching and then over-researching mm -hmm. so that you would find out, so because at a certain point you start to find so many amazing details. Um, so for instance, one of the things that actually, I, there, there was a huge amount of characters I cut um, right. because uh, there would, you know, I wanted, there was Edmund Burke and Edward Gibbon was mm -hmm. coming in for little bit parts and like, um, and for instance, talking of this kind of idea of speaking, there was the tr another trial, so I'm glad I didn't do a trial because then we'd have both had trials, <laughs> where um, the trial of Warren Hastings, who was the um, governor of the East India Company, oh, and yeah. Edmund Burke um, and Sheridan, I love the idea that the lawyers were Burke and Sheridan, uh, were trying to prosecute Warren Hastings, um, basically for mistreating, I mean, for, for managing a colonial enterprise, um, which I found fascinating. And so I guess at a certain point, you start to just think, well, I have to still have whatever is the story, so everything else will have to go. But I think it's interesting, this idea of yeah, what you f permit yourself to change. I also had this thing with real names, where I decided that some people would be allowed their real name. So Beaumarchais is in as Beaumarchais, and Napoleon is in as Napoleon. Um, but then there are other people who were real, but where I gave them a slightly different name, or I gave them their first name that people might not know. or And it was, I think, to permit some kind of freedom. And then also my central character, um, a woman called Celine, was both entirely invented, but also based on a succession of real people. So I kind of, there was no right. one person who had her life story, but there were individual people who shared aspects of it. Um, I have a question. Is it true that women used to pee in bowls at parties? Yeah, in a, not in public, but yeah. Just go around the corner into a... Yeah. Okay, that's in the book. I was just curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but do you, I mean, like, I remember one of the things that I find fascinating about doing these kind of historical things, I have to say as if I've done it more than once, um, is the details that seem fantastical. Yeah, it's a big problem. Um, and are true. They're beyond fiction. And that was quite interesting to me, I think, what it did to the sense of realism or not. Um, I had a problem with uh, language around race. For instance, in the newspaper about Bogle, the Times always called him the man of colour. Everybody I gave it to said, why are you using a phrase from 2023 <laughs> to describe this man in 1876? Yeah. I was like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. That is the phrase that was used in the Times to describe this man in the witness book. So it's stuff like that, that people think they know the past very well yeah. and then they're continually surprised and it seems anachronistic, but actually it's the truth. Yeah. So I had to make decisions sometimes. That one I left in because it amused me so much, but there was a lot like that yeah. where things seem too contemporary to be true, but but are true, yeah. Um, your novel, I haven't, I, the content was just amazing, really inspiring, everything. I was just wondering about your structure. I've not read a book for ages with such a poetic, short, sharp chapters into little volumes. And I was just wondering what, why you structured it that way rather than doing these chunky um, chapters that so many authors. I think that's a little bit about what I mean about reading new things. I. I'd seen it in other people's books. I'd like, I like the epigraph, I like the idea of it. And I was trying to fight so hard against, um, I don't know what the word for it is, like continuity, that thing the English novel does, which is like, like kind of cozy you along so you don't really notice the gaps or the problems or like the question that I think has become very current, like it's a question like, where does the money from Darcy's house come from? Well, you never think about it in Pride and Prejudice because you're too busy in the lovely, beautiful, perfectly knitted structure, but I didn't, I didn't want that. You know, there are millions of those novels and it's, it's not that I 
can't write in a straight line. I can, but I really didn't want to. I you wanted do something to, similar in NW. Now. Yeah, I, and I think part of it, like if I were, if I had my critic hat on rather than writer hat in, I think it's psychological. I think when you come from maybe a minority group and you're aware constantly of a secondary self that people see, so they think they know something about you. That's literally what prejudice means. So then you have to kind of write around it. And I realized that over the years, I've become very used to like, like Muhammad Ali, ducking and diving basically, to get round this other thing, which is sitting in the middle of every text. And I think almost everybody, women have that feeling, Jews have that feeling, anybody who isn't absolutely at the center knows that there's a secondary self that's wandering around. Um, and so I've, I've, that's what it is, I think. I if I write in a straight line, it would as to be assuming that everybody reading it knows exactly what I'm talking about. And we all come from the same place and have the same... That's, th that's how you can write in a straight line. Otherwise, you have to kind of manoeuvre a little bit. I just wanted to ask you why or how you came to choose William Harrison Ainsworth as your subject. I mean, like all things, he's just my neighbour. He's local <laughs> and um, I like local things. Um, that was it, really. I just knew about him. Two facts made me laugh about him. One, that Shoot Up Hill in Cricklewood is called that, and people in Cricklewood will tell you it's because there were highwaymen in Cricklewood, but that's not true. It's called that because William set novels there and the truth got confused. So I thought, that's weird that you could write a novel and actually get a street renamed by accident. <laughs> and also this funny fact about him that he was so incredibly successful, so untalented, and so completely forgotten. I just thought that was a fantastic and then combination what, what of human the traits. Like... The trial came from a Borges story I read in college uh, the Tom Castro story, which is, is the trial, and he mentions Bogle. He gets his first name wrong, but he's, he had the same idea. Borges said, that black man must have been a genius to speak for two years in court and tell this insane story and have the whole of England listen to him and believe him. So I read that story and thought, oh, I, I wonder. I wondered about Bogle, because in Jamaica we have this hero, Paul Bogle, were they related? I don't think they were. But it's just stuck in my mind, like, yeah. for 20 years, basically. Hi. Um, you've spoken about the 90s quite a lot. And um, yes. it's this weird thing at the moment. I keep this, like, back, this aesthetic, 90s aesthetic, <laughs> yes. back. But this cultural sensibility is so, so, like, different. There's so much just, yeah, it's so different. And I was wondering what, beginning to write a novel in that specific period, right at the end of the 90s, in that kind of, how things were then, what do you think it gave um, you? Yeah. Don't you notice, I really notice now, when we were young and the generation above us would talk about the 60s and you'd literally fucking roll your eyes like, Shut up, talking about the fucking 60s and you're love and you had love and whatever. You didn't want to hear a word of it. We didn't have It love. made you physically sick. And yet secretly you were kind of curious and you listened to the music and you read the books and you didn't want to hear anyone with a ponytail tell you about whatever, true free love in Woodstock. And, I think it's something similar, like my daughter would rather die than hear a single story of, oh, in the 90s we did this and that, and, but there is this curiosity. I, I think the bit I can't deal with is the patronizing uh, fake memory of the 90s. So particularly in the case of women's issues, there's a lot of books and articles about, my God, do you remember the magazines with the, you know, like, mm. and women must have been so unhappy then, and. I'm like, have you been to a girls' school recently? Have you seen any 14-year-old girls? Are they running around in a state of unbelievable joy and happiness? Does anyone have a 14-year-old girl here? Might have a sense that 
new demons appear. And it just seems amazing. You can write these pious books about, you know, lad mags and then create a culture where every 10-year-old boy has Pornhub on his phone and is showing it to girls in the playground. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's absolutely extraordinary. So that part, that kind of like, oh, we know so much better now, I find a little bit intolerable, to be honest, because girls seem, if not more miserable than they were. In my, when I was, a, I don't know about you, when I was a kid in school, maybe two or three anorexics in a school of 2,000. Yeah. How about now? Plus self-harm, plus... So but you, I, mean, I, I find that bit a bit like, ugh, 90s were bad, sure, but uh, every era finds its own horror for women, apparently. <laughs> Don't you think, though, the strangeness of any era as well is that you're not aware, while you're in it, you're it's not, not nothing. So that I the think joke about the 90s, it was the most boring, nothing. Yeah. We used to laugh about, what is this we're living in? We it's literally no nothing. Yeah. Every other era has been something, this is just nothing. <laughs> and now suddenly it's something, and we're too old to enjoy it. But I it. think the... Ridiculous. Everything, I, I feel like everyone was talking about the, the ironic and the cynical and the self-referential and the sort of, that was the sort of late 90s Suppose. vibe. But I don't think I felt that. No, I didn't feel and that. And I don't know how much... It's constructed after the fact. Yeah. And I think even listening to those 60s bores, you could see they were also constructing it after the fact. In reality, they had yeah. jobs and lives and it was difficult. And it was only in the 80s that it was suddenly, you know, look at us on what we used to do. We were here, we were there. I, I think it's just something you construct and it becomes a nostalgia. Watching people like... I watched Take That interviewed on TV yesterday as if they were the Beatles. Like, are you... Are you serious? Like bands you wouldn't have spat on in the street are suddenly like icons of music. So this yeah. is what happens. And, and everyone's watching Friends. Yeah, it's just yeah. what happens. It's, no one watched Friends. Did you ever watch no, Friends? No one watched that? Friends. Never. No. Not in your life would you have been seen watching that show. So it's just... But you watch Friends now. Now I yeah. watch it. Now I'm totally <laughs> yeah. into it. Um. It makes no sense, yeah. Hi, um, thank you so much. Um, I was really interested, Zadie, in what you said about uh, the excess of the signifier and, um, Adam, you mentioned realism just before and I guess I'm wondering about the question of realism and uh, how it pertains to both of your practices right. um, and also what you might think about um, the necessity of or relevance of realism as a mode in the contemporary moment, is it still relevant? And if it is, how can it be used? Thank you. I, I think the new realism is, a, to me, a little bit gullible in front of the real. Like, it really takes reality as a solid thing that can be known and named and defined, and then it goes from there. And I do find that a bit strange and a bit alienating. That's not my idea of realism. My idea of realism was Ulysses. And like, the question is, how does life really feel? That's Virginia Woolf's question too. Like, how does it really feel? Whereas I think a lot of writers now, if you're taking your cues from reality from like television sitcoms, movies, you take that deep structure and grammar and you put it in your novel and everybody's quipping and fun. Yeah, okay, but that's not real to me. That that's the mastery of a... Of a code. Of a code, yeah, of a series of codes. And that's not realism. So... I, I see it everywhere, but it doesn't really... Um, with some notable exception, exceptions, like Sally Rooney is a really notable exception, that the question of, is this how things feel? Yes, that's how it feels. That's how sex feels. She's, she really understands something about realism. But the thing of, like, 
me and Joe and Tara in Hoxton were walking down the street. Everything is solid. This, 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 everything. There's no doubt anywhere. And that is not how reality feels to me. Yeah, and I think that's something that, if we're talking about the night, like, I feel like that was very much... The re like, realism was uninteresting to me from the beginning, and I think still is uninteresting to me in many ways, because it felt like a code that, that, that I think... Like a sitcom. That, yeah, and that everything that is fascinating to me is about the instability of whatever we're calling the real and the difficulty of defining that. Um, and I think it's where I have a slight set feeling of old-fashioned in relation to the autofiction as well, where it feels, not in all, but often what upsets me there is not so much partly that it is often linked to a sort of realist code, but also that the sense of the self is seen as very stable. So stable. And, um, and, and encourages the reader to be entirely gullible in front of that, that person, self. Yeah. It's like, oh, this person says I, so this is them. And also so that this their self-reporting must be true. Yeah, rather than but it's just a rhetoric, doubtful. it's just a tone, it's, it's so, a way of writing. But I do think... I'm also very interested, though, in the idea of truth at the same time. So I think that there's some kind of distinction in my head. I mean, I think a lot of times when writers are talking, there's like, they, they come up with two definitions, and the, they just mean this is the stuff I like. Right. And, that's, there's, you know, that there's, and part of it's aesthetic. And yeah. part of, but it's, kind of, it's very different. But I definitely would differentiate between what everyone calling truthfulness and realism, as it were, mm. and I can see that for many people, like their, my, tr you know, th th their real would also be true for them. But like, kind of, I'm trying to think of a moment, like I don't know, like where, in Proust, where the grandmother dies or something, like a moment where the symbols disappear in some way. And so, and I think that, ironically, I think that's often hugely to do with construction, so that there is actually a huge amount of codified work going on to right. produce these moments where I don't know I find it very difficult to find but I think that's often what I'm reading for well um, you had the dream I think I have a line here this is a common dream uh, oh to say farewell to writing to let all the objects stand there very simply and naturally as themselves the way a fern or a mushroom might stand there and that that has long been the dream like no metaphors no flowery good. language yeah. just the thing itself Appearing and yet a lot of people who are supposedly writing the thing itself, I get annoyed by. So I don't know what but I, I think want. they're not writing the thing itself. <laughs> no, <laughs> they, they say they are. So they say that I think the state. Yeah, I think I would be. I'm always very distrustful of someone who thinks that they're a realist. It would make me worried that they're yeah, a bad person. Um, thank you all very much for your uh, questions and contributions and and for squeezing in. Um, it's it's been wonderful. Thank you both so much. Honestly, it's been pleasure. a real pleasure. I think some of the best events here are when we have two friends who, you know, know their stuff inside out, just really getting into it. So thank you both for, for bringing that here tonight and letting us all listen. Um, everyone, Sadie Smith and Asim Thurbar. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.